A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 53. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 18. Discoveries at Abu Simbel, Part 2. Our urbane and gentlemanly shake was, however, not quite so charming when it came to settling time. We had sent at first for fifty men, and the price agreed upon was five piastres, or about a shilling English, for each man per day. In answer to this call there first came forty men for half a day, then a hundred men for a whole day, or what was called a whole day, so making a total of six pounds due for wages. But the descendant of the Kashifs would hear of nothing so commonplace as the simple fulfilment of a straightforward contract. He demanded full pay for a hundred men for two whole days, a gun for himself, and a liberal bakshish in cash. Finding he had asked more than he had any chance of getting, he conceded the question of wages, but stood out for a game-bag and a pair of pistols. Finally he was obliged to be content with the six pounds for his men, and for himself two pots of jam, two boxes of sardines, a bottle of eau de cologne, a box of pills, and half a sovereign. By four o'clock he and his followers were gone, and we once more had the place to ourselves. So long as they were there it was impossible to do anything, but now for the first time we fairly entered into possession of our newly found treasure. All the rest of that day and all the next day we spent at work in and about the Spios. L. and the little lady took their books and knitting there, and made a little drawing-room of it. The writer copied paintings and inscriptions. The idle man and the painter took measurements and surveyed the ground round about, especially endeavouring to make out the plan of certain fragments of wall, the foundations of which were yet traceable. A careful examination of these ruins, and a little clearing of the sand here and there, led to further discoveries. They found that the Spios had been approached by a large outer hall built of sun-dried brick, with one principal entrance facing the Nile, and two entrances facing northwards. The floor was buried deep in sand and debris, but enough of the walls remained above the surface to show that the ceiling had been vaulted and the side entrances arched. The southern boundary wall of this hall, when the surface sand was removed, appeared to be no less than twenty feet in thickness. This was not in itself so wonderful, there being instances of ancient Egyptian crude brick walls which measure eighty feet in thickness. But it was astonishing as compared with the north, east, and west walls, which measured only three feet. Deeming it impossible that this mass could be solid throughout, the idle man set to work with a couple of sailors to probe the centre part of it, and it soon became evident that there was a hollow space about three feet in width running due east and west, down not quite exactly the middle of the structure. All at once the idle man thrust his fingers into a skull. This was such an amazing and unexpected incident that for the moment he said nothing, but went on quietly displacing the sand and feeling his way under the surface. The next instant his hand came in contact with the edge of a clay bowl, which he carefully withdrew. It measured about four inches in diameter, was hand-moulded, and full of caked sand. He now proclaimed his discoveries, and all ran to help in the work. Soon a second and smaller skull was turned up, then another bowl, and then, just under the place from which the bowls were taken, 
the bones of two skeletons all detached, perfectly desiccated and apparently complete. The remains were those of a child and a small-grown person, probably a woman. The teeth were sound, the bones wonderfully delicate and brittle. As for the little skull, which had fallen apart at the sutures, it was pure and fragile in texture as the cup of a water-lily. We laid the bones aside as we found them, examining every handful of sand in the hope of discovering something that might throw light upon the burial. But in vain. We found not a shred of clothing, not a bead, not a coin, not the smallest vestige of anything that might help one to judge whether the internment had taken place a hundred years ago or a thousand. We now called up all the crew, and went on excavating downwards into what seemed to be a long and narrow vault, measuring some fifteen feet by three. After reflection convinced us that we had stumbled upon a chance Nubian grave, and that the bowls, which at first we absurdly dignified with the name of cinieri urns, were but the usual water-bowls placed at the heads of the dead. But we were in no mood for reflection at the time. We made sure the Spios was a mortuary chapel, that the vault was a vertical pit leading to a sepulchre chamber, and at the bottom of it we should find, who could tell what, mummies, perhaps, and sarcophagi, and funerary statuettes, and jewels, and papyri, and wonders without end. That these uncared-for bones should be laid in the mouth of such a pit scarcely occurred to us as an incongruity. Supposing them to be Nubian remains, what then? If a modern Nubian at the top, why not an ancient Egyptian at the bottom? As the work of excavation went on, however, the vault was found to be entered by a steep inclined plane. Then the inclined plane turned out to be a flight of much worn and very shallow stairs. These led down to a small square landing some twelve feet below the surface, from which landing an arched doorway and passage opened into the forecourt of the Spios. Our sailors had great difficulty in excavating this part, in consequence of the weight of superincumbent sand and debris on the side next the Spios. By shoring up the ground, however, they were enabled completely to clear the landing, which was curiously paved with cones of rude pottery like the bottoms of amphorae. These cones, of which we took out some twenty-eight or thirty, were not in the least like the celebrated funerary cones found so abundantly at Thebes. They bore no stamp, and were much shorter and more lumpy in shape. Finally, the cones being all removed, we came to a compact and solid floor of baked clay. The painter, meanwhile, had also been at work. Having traced the circuit and drawn out a ground plan, he came to the conclusion that the whole mass adjoining the southern wall of the Spios was in fact composed of the ruins of a pylon, the walls of which were seven feet in thickness, built in regular string-courses of moulded brick, and finished at the angles with the usual torus or round moulding. The superstructure, with its chambers, passages, and top cornice, was gone, and this part with which we were now concerned was merely the basement, and included the bottom of the staircase. The painter's ground plan demolished all our hopes at one fell swoop. The vault was a vault no longer. The staircase led to no sepulchre chamber. The brick floor hid no secret entrance. Our mummies melted into thin air, and we were left with no excuse for carrying on the excavations. We were mortally disappointed. In vain we told ourselves that the discovery of a large brick pylon, the existence of which had been unsuspected by preceding travellers, 
was an event of greater importance than the finding of a tomb. We had set our hearts on a tomb, and I am afraid we cared less than we ought for the pylon. Having traced thus far the course of the excavations and the way in which one discovery led step by step to another, I must now return to the Spios, and, as accurately as I can, describe it, not only from my notes made on the spot, but by the light of such observations as I afterwards made among structures of the same style and period. I must, however, premise that, not being able to go inside while the excavators were in occupation, and remaining but one whole day at Abu Simbel after the work was ended, I had but short time at my disposal. I would gladly have made colored copies of all the wall paintings, but this was impossible. I therefore was obliged to be content with transcribing the inscriptions and sketching a few of the more important subjects. The rock-cut chamber which I have hitherto described as a spios, and which we at first believed to be a tomb, was in fact neither the one nor the other. It was the adytum of a partly built, partly excavated monument, coeval in date with the great temple. In certain points of design this monument resembles the contemporary spios of Beit Aweli. It is evident, for instance, that the outer halls of both were originally vaulted, and the much-mutilated sculptures over the doorway of the excavated chamber at Abu Simbel are almost identical in subject and treatment with those over the entrance to the excavated parts of Beit Aweli. As regards general conception, the Abu Simbel monument comes under the same head with the contemporary temples of Dur, Gurf Hussein, and Wadi Sabua, being in a mixed style which combines excavation with construction. This style seems to have been peculiarly in favor during the reign of Ramesses II. Situate at the south-eastern angle of the rock, a little way beyond the façade of the great temple, this rock-cut adytum and hall of entrance face southeast by east, and command much the same view that is commanded higher up by the temple of Hathor. The adytum, or excavated spios, measures twenty-one feet two and one-half inches in breadth, by fourteen feet eight inches in length. The height from floor to ceiling is about twelve feet. The doorway measures four feet three and one-half inches in width, and the outer recess for the door-frame five feet. Two large circular holes, one in the threshold and the other in the lintel, mark the place of the pivot on which the door once swung. It is not very easy to measure the outer hall in its present ruined and encumbered state, but as nearly as we could judge its dimensions are as follows. Length, twenty-five feet. Width, twenty-two and one-half feet. Width of principal entrance facing the Nile, six feet. Width of two side entrances, four feet and six feet, respectively. Thickness of crude brick walls, three feet. Engaged in the brickwork on either side of the principal entrance to this hall are two stone door-jams, and some six or eight feet in front of these there originally stood two stone hawks on hieroglyphed pedestals. One of these hawks we found in situ, the other lay some little distance off, and the painter, suspecting nothing of these after-revelations, had used it as a post to which to tie one of the main ropes of his sketching-tent. A large hieroglyphed slab, which I take to have formed part of the door, lay overturned against the side of the pylon some few yards nearer the river. As far as the adytum and outer hall are concerned, the accompanying ground-plan, which is in part founded on my own measurements, and in part borrowed from the ground-plan drawn out by the painter, may be accepted as tolerably correct. 
but with regard to the pylon I can only say with certainty that the central staircase is three feet in width, and that the walls on each side of it are seven feet in thickness. So buried is it in debris and sand, that even to indicate where the building ends and the rubbish begins at the end next to the Nile is impossible. This part is therefore left indefinite in the ground plan. So far as we could see, there was no stone revetement upon the inner side of the walls of the Proneos. If anything of the kind ever existed, some remains of it would probably be found by thoroughly clearing the area, an interesting enterprise for any who may have leisure to undertake it. I have now to speak of the decorations of the adytum, the walls of which, from immediately under the ceiling to within three feet of the floor, are covered with religious subjects elaborately sculptured in bas-relief, coated as usual with a thin film of stucco, and colored with a richness for which I know no parallel, except in the tomb of Seti I at Thebes. Above the level of the drifted sand, this color was as brilliant in tone and as fresh in surface as on the day when it was transferred to those walls from the palette of the painter. All below that level, however, was dimmed and damaged. The ceiling is surrounded by a frieze of cartouches supported by sacred asps, each cartouche with its supporters being divided from the next by a small sitting figure. These figures, in other respects uniform, were the symbolic heads of various gods, the cow-head of Hathor, the ibis-head of Thoth, the hawk-head of Horus, the jackal-head of Anubis, etc., etc. The cartouches contain the ordinary style and title of Ramesses II, Ra Yusurma Sotep and Ra Ramesses Mer Amen, and are surmounted by a row of sun-discs. Under each sitting god is depicted the phonetic hieroglyph signifying myrrh, or beloved. By means of this device the whole frieze assumes the character of a connected legend, and describes the king not only as beloved of Amun, but as Ramesses beloved of Hathor, of Thoth, of Horus, in short, of each god depicted in the series. These gods accepted, the frieze is almost identical in design with the frieze in the first hall of the great temple. The west, or principal wall, facing the entrance, is divided into two large subjects, each containing two figures the size of life. In the division to the right, Ramesses II worships Ra. In the division to the left, he worships Amun-Ra, thus following the order observed in the other two temples, where the subjects relating to Amun-Ra occupy the left half, and the subjects relating to Ra occupy the right half of each structure. An upright ensign surmounted by an exquisitely drawn and colored head of Horus Eros separates these two subjects. In the subject to the right, Ramesses, wearing the red and white shent, presents an offering of two small Aribolus vases without handles. The vases are painted blue, and are probably intended to represent lapis lazuli, a substance much prized by the ancient Egyptians, and known to them by the name of Kesbet. The king's necklace, armlets, and bracelets are also blue. Ra sits enthroned, holding in one hand the Ankh, or Crux Ansada, emblem of life, and in the other the greyhound-headed scepter of the gods. He is hawk-headed and crowned with the sun-disc and asp. His flesh is painted bright Venetian red. He wears a pectoral ornament, a rich necklace of alternate vermilion and black drops, and a golden-yellow belt studded with red and black stones. 
The throne, which stands on a blue platform, is painted in stripes of red, blue, and white. The platform is decorated with a row of gold-colored stars and Ankh emblems picked out with red. At the foot of this platform, between the god and the king, stands a small altar, on which are placed the usual blue lotus with red stalk, and a spouted libation vessel. To the left of the Horus ensign, seated back to back with Ra upon a similar throne, sits Amun-Ra, of all Egyptian gods the most terrible to look upon, with his blue-black complexion, his corselet of golden chain-armor, and his head-dress of towering plumes. Here the wonderful preservation of the surface enabled one to see by what means the ancient artists were wont to produce this singular blue-black effect of color. It was evident that the flesh of the god had first been laid in with dead black, and then colored over with a dry, powdery cobalt blue, through which the black remained partly visible. He carries in one hand the ankh, and in the other the greyhound-headed scepter. Ramesses II of Spios. To him advances the king, his right hand uplifted, and in his left a small basket containing a votive statuette of Ma, the goddess of truth and justice. Ma is, however, shorn of her distinctive feather, and holds the jackal-headed staff instead of the customary crux ansata. As portraiture there is not much to be said for any of these heads of Ramesses II, but the features bear a certain resemblance to the well-known profile of the king. The action of the figure is graceful and animated, and the drawing displays in all its purity the firm and flowing line of Egyptian draftsmanship. The dress of the king is very rich in color, the meter-shaped cask being of a vivid cobalt blue, picked out with gold color, the belt, necklace, armlets, and bracelets of gold, studded apparently with precious stones, the apron green and gold. Over the king's head hovers the sacred vulture, emblem of Mott, holding in her claws a kind of scutcheon upon which is depicted the crux ansata. The South Wall the subjects represented on this wall are as follows. 1. Ramesses, life-size, presiding over a table of offerings. The king wears upon his head the cloth, or head-cloth, striped gold and white, and decorated with the areas. The table is piled in the usual way with flesh, fowl, and flowers. The surface being here quite perfect, the details of these objects are seen to be rendered with surprising minuteness. Even the tiny black feather stumps of the plucked geese are given with the fidelity of Chinese art, while a red gash in the breast of each shows in what way it was slain for the sacrifice. The loaves are shaped precisely like the so-called cottage loaves of today, and have the same little depression in the top made by the baker's finger. Lotus and papyrus blossoms in elaborate bouquet holders crown the pile. 2. Two tripods of light and elegant design containing flowers. 3. The bari, or sacred boat, painted gold color, with the usual veil half drawn across the naos, or shrine, the prow of the boat being richly carved, decorated with the uda, or symbolic eye, and preceded by a large fan of ostrich feathers. The boat is peopled with small black figures, one of which kneels at the stern, while a sphinx couchant with black body and human head keeps watch at the prow. The sphinx symbolizes the king. End of section 54